welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolias First. For more information, visit www.magnoliasfirst.org. Welcome to M1 Online Worship. We're so pleased that you would join us for worship today. And I want to remind you that next Sunday, September the 13th, here at Magnolias First, we will be resuming in-person worship for all of our services. So if you are ready to return to in-person worship on campus, we will welcome you next Sunday. But we will continue to have M1 worship online, but you need to be aware that our times will change for online worship to parallel those in-person worship services. So traditions will be at 930 and then the Encounter and the Resonate services will be at 11 o'clock. So make note of those time changes and join us either online or in person next Sunday, September the 13th. Well, today we begin a brand new series entitled, When God Walked Among Us. We'll be spending six weeks in the Gospel of John, chapters 6 through 9. And so as we begin this journey through this section of John's gospel, there's some foundational questions I think we need uh, to ask, and I want to try to give you some simple, straightforward answers, beginning with, who was John? Well, there are several Johns mentioned in the Scripture. Uh, this John was one of the 12 disciples, the brother of James, who was also one of the disciples, and he was a part of Jesus' inner circle. John was closer to Jesus, perhaps, than any other. He's often referred to as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, he refers to himself that way, speaking in the third person. So John was an especially important figure in the formation of God's Word in the New Testament. He also wrote the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then in his late years, he wrote the book of Revelation. So a significant image and a significant man in the formation of the gospel as it spread throughout the first century and all the generations to follow. Well, then we would ask then, if he wrote all these different books in the New Testament, what was his purpose in writing his gospel account, the gospel of John? Well, in short, it was to prove that Jesus was and is the Son of God. And we see that reflected in the very first chapter of John's gospel, John 1, verse 14. So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And throughout the gospel account, we see again and again the testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. So when we get to chapters 6 through 9, what is it that we find in John's account? We find the words and the acts of Jesus, God incarnate. These chapters from John's account are 
partial accounts of what Jesus did and what Jesus said when he walked on the planet that he created among his creations. I'm excited to embark on this study. So let me give you just a backdrop. By John chapter 6, Jesus' earthly ministry is in full swing. It's building to a crescendo. The crowds are growing exponentially, now numbering in the thousands, and they are following Jesus almost in a frenzy. They've tasted of Jesus' miracles. They've been there as he's healed the sick and as he has caused the blind to be able to see. And as they've seen these miracles of Jesus, they wanted more. They wanted bigger. They wanted better. And so they ran after him, anticipating and expecting the next miracle. And the crowds were desperate for a charismatic, powerful leader that would lead a rebellion against Rome who had oppressed the Jews and kept them under their rule. And, and they wanted political freedom. They wanted self-governing autonomy. And they wanted a leader who would replace Rome and put the Jews in a position of world power. Did they recognize and understand that Jesus was something, someone, far greater and more significant than a, a person who would become a footnote on the pages of human history? Did his own disciples grasp that their master was destined to become far more than a minor role player in the story of mankind, that it was not about becoming the king of Israel, that he was the king of glory? Did the disciples yet understand this, that Jesus was the God-man, that he was the Lamb of God who was to die for the sins of the world, that he would conquer the death and grave, that he would return to heaven to resume his rightful place at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us? Did they understand? Did they realize at this point, no. But when the curtain rises on John chapter 6, though the disciples did not yet realize these things, later they would. And as John 6 opens on that day, they would show a lack of faith and understanding as they faced a seemingly impossible situation. So before we look at the biblical narrative, let me ask you, when you face a seemingly impossible situation, do you forget who Jesus is? When there are insignificant financial resources to meet a need that you are facing, do you forget who Jesus is? When there is a diagnosis that could be life-threatening, do you forget who Jesus is, when a relationship is broken seemingly beyond reconciliation, do you forget who Jesus is? Or fill in the blank 
with your own seemingly impossible situation? Do you forget that the God who walked among us is the God who can do the impossible? Well, if so, then though the story is for all of us, it is especially for you. And I pray that it will encourage and inspire you as we are all reminded that our God is a God of miracles and that our big idea for today is true. Jesus makes the impossible possible. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to John chapter 6, and we will begin with verse 1. As always, I'll be teaching from the New Living Translation. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Don't misunderstand, Jesus was not puzzled about what to do and looking to Philip to help him figure it out. No, Jesus was introducing what would be a life lesson for Philip and the other disciples and everyone in the crowd that day, a lesson that would change Philip and all of theirs perspective. You see, faith does not deny the problem but sees it as an opportunity for God to do something, to do something unexpected, to do something extraordinary. Verse 6 says, he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we work for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. You see, as Philip looked at the crowd, he saw this as an unsolvable problem. And he said, even if we did the best we could do, it would never be enough because Philip was seeing the situation through the lens of the problem, not through the eyes of faith. And that's what faithlessness does. Faithlessness only considers what we can do, not what God can do. So see the story unfold, verse 8. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? You can almost hear his struggle as Andrew was struggling with the tension between Jesus' miraculous power that he had seen with his very own eyes and yet the hard reality of the insufficiency of their resources as they looked 
at the problem of the moment. So what do you do? What do you do when the resources you have at hand are far less than the need you can't escape, the need you can't meet that's right in front of you? What do you do? You listen to Jesus. Verse 10, tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. We know this story so well. It's almost easy to read it in a matter-of-fact kind of way. But I want us to stop and think about this for a moment. This was a miracle on a massive scale. There were 5,000 men, and that's the way they numbered crowds in that patriarchal culture. But that means if there were 5,000 men, if you counted the women and the children, there were 12, 15,000 people or more. It was huge. And what we need to see clearly is that only God can take insufficiency and turn it into overabundance. Well, see the response of the people, verse 14. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. Now, when they say the word prophet, that sounds very spiritual, but in reality, they had reinvented and reinterpreted the Scripture. They weren't expecting a prophet in the biblical sense. They were expecting and wanting a political revolutionary, someone who would dethrone Rome and exalt the Jews. Verse 15 when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Here's something we need to understand. Jesus didn't come to further someone's agenda. He came to redeem us from sin. And just as the Jews wanted to use him to do what they thought was right and they thought was good, Jesus would not buy into that agenda because that was not his mission from the Father. And his mission has not changed. He came not to bring about political revolution. He came to redeem sinners and restore them in their relationship to the Father. Well, as John 6 continues, 
between verses 13 and 22 is the familiar story of Jesus walking on the water. And I want to pick the narrative back up with verse 22 after that scene has taken place. John 6, 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat, and they realized Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? They were expecting to engage Jesus for their own political revolutionary ideals, but Jesus quickly sets them straight. Look at verse 26. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. They were looking for the next miracle. They wanted to start the revolution, but Jesus quickly helped them to understand that was not his mission. You think, he would say to the crowd, that the miracles were to initiate a political uprising, to gather a revolutionary force, to start this revolt against Rome. You don't understand it's about a kingdom, but not an earthly kingdom. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. I believe there's a truth in this story that is often overlooked, and I don't want us to miss it today. If we only seek God's miraculous power to solve our impossible problems, we too have missed what Jesus truly came to give. On that day that Jesus taught the crowd, they needed food. They needed lunch. Jesus provided lunch. But Jesus' miracles were more than about lunch. They were about the heavenly manna. They were about the bread of life and about the living water. And so what does that mean for us? Does God want to do miracles in your life and my life to meet our genuine needs? Yes, he does, as he did that day for that temporary need for food for the crowd. But it's about so much more than lunch. He demonstrates his miraculous power to point us to something greater, something bigger, something that doesn't pass away, eternal life through faith in the Son of God. If you are watching worship today and you have not yet become a Christ follower 
And maybe you're even praying to God for a miracle, for something that's a genuine need in your life. The greatest need you have is not for that immediate need. The greatest need you have is an eternal need. And the most important decision you could ever make would be to trust in Jesus, to put your faith in Him, to follow Him, to become a Christ follower. If you want to know more about that, if you have questions about that, if you're not certain exactly what that means or how that would look in your life, I want to encourage you, go to our website, m1bc.org. And in the lower right-hand corner, there's a little tab that says, Ask Us. Click on that. And one of our pastors will respond to you, and we will be glad never to pressure you, but to dialogue with you as you desire about what it would mean for you to become a Christ follower. But maybe you're watching today, and you need a miracle. That you're a Christ follower. You know that you have eternal life, but you need a miracle. There's something in your life that's pressing, and you need a God-sized miracle, I want to encourage you today. Our God still works miracles. He still has the power to do what no one else can do. But I want to, to be clear to you. I want to give you a reality check as you would seek God for a miracle. That process, that experience of seeing a God-sized miracle is not a quick and easy process. It involves praying and trusting and waiting. And so I want to share with you some hard truths. I'm calling them frustrating facts about God's miracles in our lives. I believe these are true. Let me share a few with you. Here's one. There's nothing God can't do, but he seldom does it in the way we expect. Can I just say to you, God is not Amazon. You can't put in your order and expect it to show up tomorrow at your doorstep. The way that God works almost never is what we expect. And often it will be in a way that we didn't even imagine, we didn't even think was possible. And that way he gets the glory. So as you're praying for a miracle, know that it may not come in the way you expect. Here's another fact. God's miracle-working timetable almost never coincides with our impatience. Almost never. Uh, we, we are so conditioned to things happening quickly. We've, we've been conditioned to be impatient when the, the little wheel starts to spin on our computer, we get frustrated. When something doesn't work as we want it to, we get frustrated. We want things to happen. We want it now. We want it in a hurry. I heard this saying a long time ago, and it's still true. God is never in a hurry, but he's never late. So just know as you pray and as you're waiting and as you're believing that God's timetable is not the same as yours, and he's not impressed 
by our impatience. He reminds us that he is God and we're not. Well, one more fact. Our faith often grows the most in the waiting and trusting for what we cannot yet see or even imagine. Often it's not in the arrival of the miracle. It's in that in-between in which we are believing God for something we can't yet see. That's faith. And our faith grows when we trust him, when we don't yet have tangible evidence to do so. When we believe God will fulfill his word and keep his promises, and then God finally in his own time and way brings it to fruition. That's when our faith grows the most. Instant gratification doesn't build faith. Believing God does. And it is not just the meeting of your need in a miraculous way that God intends to do. It is his purpose to grow you up in your faith, to mature you in your trust, to increase your ability to believe him when you don't yet see evidence to do so. So let me conclude the message challenging you to take these two simple next steps. Number one, stop looking at problems as impossibilities. And remember the day that Jesus fed the 5,000 plus with only five loaves and two fish. You may be frustrated and in despair today because your God is too small. Here's what you need to understand. We serve a big God. We serve a powerful God. We serve a God who knows you and what you're going through, who loves you and cares about you. So don't look at the problems as impossibilities. Don't be like the disciples that said, what good is it? We don't have enough. Remember the miracle that Jesus did that day on the hillside, and he's the same God today he was that day. The second next step is don't just ask, what can God do for me? But ask, how can I make him known? Whatever I need a miracle experience you're going through, it's, it's about more than just that need. It's about something bigger. It's about something grander. It's a part of God's master plan to make the gospel known through your experience of faith-growing trust. If you will trust God, if you will wait on God in faith and finally see him work, in ways that you or no one in your life can deny, then God is glorified and the gospel just grows through you. Listen, rest in this truth. Jesus makes the impossible possible. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that you loved us so much, you sent your Son to walk among us. And that in those days that John's gospel records for us, you walked on planet earth in human form. You demonstrated your divine power. And then you died for us, paying the price for our sin, so that if we would accept your sacrifice by faith, we would become children of God, heirs of the Father, a part of the family of God, tied in to the, the power of God that still works miracles today. Lord, I want to pray for those who are watching today who need a miracle. They're facing a seemingly impossible situation. It may be financial. It may, may be medical. It may be relational. It could be anything in life experience, but there is nothing too hard for you, O oh God. There is nothing that's impossible for you. You make the impossible possible. Lord, would you work in their life? Would you help them to be patient and to trust you in that not yet season and then bring about a divine act, a miracle in their life that will reaffirm their faith and help them to make the gospel known to all who know them. Father, I ask this on their behalf. In the powerful name of Jesus, our miracle-working Savior, amen.